Welcome to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan. I'm a primatologist, a comedian, and co founder of Boaz Network, a anthropology nonprofit. And today I'm joined with my hilarious co host, Chuck Nice. Thanks Hi. for being here. What's happening, Natalia? Yeah, you know, we're just here. We're going to talk about a, a wild, wacky, controversial subject uh, the science of cloning. Uh, awesome. Yes, I know. We all saw Jurassic Park. We all know about Dolly the Sheep. And yes. Babs just cloned her dogs, but what what if we could bring back like woolly mammoths and and you know a Pleistocene park? Could we and should we do that? So today in studio we have biological anthropologist Dr. Ryan Rom of Lehman College, who's going to help talk to us about what exactly is cloning. So yeah, thank you for having me. Yes, yeah, thanks, for, thanks for being here. First of all, um, what is a clone? Um, I mean, well, there's lots of different kinds of cloning. Mm. I mean, the way that people mostly understand it is a genetically identical version of oneself um in science fiction that version usually has your personality and your consciousness and is being harvested for its organs so that you can continue to live for a very long time excellent exactly yes <laughs> um but in like real clones like cloning in the real world it's another body that has your genetic makeup but doesn't have your consciousness doesn't necessarily have your personality i mean think of twins twins are natural clones absolutely right? so you know when we think of cloning, we're thinking of something that's genetically identical or at least really, really similar, um, but is exactly as alike as any two twins are. But twins, so the, the, the interesting thing about twins, even though they are started out identical in terms of DNA, mutations happen. So they're not, in the end, d technically, genetically identical, correct? I mean, true enough. But at the same time, different parts of your body are not genetically identical, right? Because you have different mutations right. in different parts of your body. Yeah. So, you know, there are cells in your heart that are not genetically identical to cells in your brain or what don't know me <laughs> <laughs> you don't know me heart <laughs> so i mean you know there's genetic changes those are all relatively small beings really for the most part i've actually heard uh i heard a program where there was a true life chimera a woman who had uh genetic two separate genetic identities within her same body Seems possible. I mean, there. I feel like I sometimes have that in my body. I feel oh, that's like just, that's, that's that's in your brain. Bridget, that's in your head. <laughs> that's when I drink rum. But anyways, <laughs> but I mean, there's. I mean, that's possible. There's um, a weird little subgroup of primates called the marmosets, yep. which are little squirrely sort of things yeah. from Central <laughs> and South America. Um, they always have twins, and the placenta and the um, you know the embryo, you know the gestation of them, um, the twins share DNA. Really. So you can have, you know, a female you know, uh, marmoset, you can have a male and female twins and you'll be able to detect Y chromosomes in the female later on because they've exchanged, they've exchanged the DNA. Wow. That's incredible. Uh, primate, so, I mean, that they study them a lot just to understand like placenta health and how, how the placenta plays a huge role in just the gestation process. It's kind of the unsung hero of gestation they're finding. Now you said something I, I did not know. Um, <clears throat> They always have twins. Man, is, is that virtually always? I okay. Mean, it's. I mean, I think it's possible for them to have singletons or triplets, right? But, like, but pretty so much it, all the time. It's so it's like the way we have, you know, uh, singular birth. Single birth, yeah. They have twins, twins. In, in that same common, uh, commonplace yep, manner. Yeah, I mean, huh. most of the time. Another wow. cool side note about calatricids or marmosets and tamarins is not the, the twinning happens, but also they have an interesting, you know, social dynamic where the males actually play a, a, a very vital role in, in, in parenting. 
So the males stick around and help out, and, and there actually has been um, suppressed ovulation in sisters sometimes in, in, in marmosets. So there'll be two females, and one will help out with rearing the, the young of another. So they're for these little squirrely guys. I mean, and you've we've all seen the pictures of the pygmy marmosets where you, it's on a finger and it literally looks like those little things you can kind of clamp on your little monkeys. They have really interesting lives, you know what I mean? So that's why I feel like primatology doesn't always get its due because it teach us a lot about how we became what, who we are. Who we are. Yeah. 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 That's fascinating, though. That, that, I, I love it. I love it. I love it. <laughs> so I, now I want to just kind of understand how can we clone in a lab? There's, I know that there's multiple ways of doing that. So if we can go through maybe just a couple. I mean, there's sort of, I mean, if you look online or whatnot, they'll talk about three different kinds of cloning. One of which doesn't even remote. One of it's just just sort of a technique for copying DNA that doesn't have bear any resemblance to um, what anybody would normally think about as cloning. I mean, it's an important technique. And I was going to say that sounds to me like the most important of them all. <laughs> <laughs> if you, if, I mean, it's like nobody cares about that. But that to me sounds like the most important technique of all. I mean, it's a really important technique in molecular biology labs. Yeah, but it doesn't. You know, you're not copying a whole organism. You're just copying a chunk of DNA right. with sort of, you know, that you can target and make sort of copies of single molecules, but it doesn't like lead to an organism necessarily. Right. Okay. And so, and then there's reproductive cloning, which is what most people think of, you know, you are creating a new organism that's genetically identical. And then there's the super sci-fi um, therapeutic cloning where, you know, the idea is, you know, now if you want to get a heart transplant or a bone marrow transplant, right, you know, somebody has, you know, somebody has to be a motorcycle rider and die mm -hmm. and, you know, you get the heart or, and you have to find a match, you know, and you have to make right. sure that they're immunologically um, compatible with you. Um, but, you know, therapeutic cloning is the idea, well, why don't I just take a cell from my body right. mm -hmm. and grow that into a heart or something if I need a heart. Right. And put Why that not? in me because that's going to be great because it's my cells, my body, it'll be perfectly compatible. I mean, that there's work that's being done on that sort of thing. It's, and there's some, I think there's some minor versions of that that have been successful in laboratory animal tests, but you know, that's a ways off in the future yet. But I mean, if we're talking about Dolly or Barbara Streisand's dogs, dogs or whatnot, yeah. we're talking <laughs> about reproductive cloning. Okay. So, yeah. And so tell me a little bit more about that. The um, process. conceptually, it's really simple. Um, it's not, you know, the idea behind it isn't uh, hard. The doing of it is really hard. I mean, it's kind of like shooting, you know, sh shooting baskets from the midcourt line in basketball. Like you can explain how to do that. It's really easy. I cannot do that. Guys. But, but to actually like pull it off is right. challenging. So, but the main method is called, um, somatic cell nuclear transplant. And that just means, you know, using a cell from your body, a normal skin cell. Not a whatever, reproductive cell. Not a reproductive so, no. cell. And you take an egg from a donor and it doesn't, the donor doesn't, you know, can be usually is the same species. You suck the nucleus out where it has the DNA in it. Right. <clears throat> With a tiny little needle, you suck the nucleus out. Amazing. You take this right. other cell, you sort of let it, you know, stick it next to that egg that doesn't have a nucleus now. Right. Give it a little jolt of electricity and they fuse together. And now we have the nucleus, nucleus. from the so you're uh, really taking from the cell. So you're really taking the 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 egg, and you're making that basically a shell, like a holder, and and then you fill it with this other DNA. Yeah, exactly. Wow. And the reason for it is that you know, like, 
Eggs are, <laughs> that is so freaky. Yeah. I love it. <laughs> and eggs are relatively large and it's all the stuff inside the egg other than the nucleus that sort of has a really big impact on telling the DNA what it's supposed, supposed to be supposed to happen. Right. 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 Because normally in your, your cells, a skin cell, a brain cell or whatnot, they only know how to be a skin cell. They only know how to be a brain. You know, they've sort of gone through this pathway of differentiation yep. mm-hmm. where they're only really capable of doing that one thing, thing that they yeah. are. Um, but when you put that nucleus in the egg, which, and by processes that are not fully understood, all the little bits, you know, there's all these little molecules and proteins and factors inside that egg cytoplasm inside the fluid inside the egg right. that then reprogram- reprograms them so that they go, oh man, we're no longer just a skin cell. Yeah. Yeah. We're free to be whatever we're going to be. I want to be exactly. anything. That's right. I can do anything, guys. That's- Watch. <laughs> I'm going to be my own organism. And then from there, what do they do? They And then you implant it in uh, surrogates and hopefully it takes. And hopefully. And that's the thing that I, I think is so interesting and people don't realize it's not a wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. It, it works every time. You uh, Sometimes you go through Oh, the efficiency. Hundreds of surrogates. Right. And, you know. The efficiencies are awful. So say, um, you know, Dolly, the first cloned mammal. Sure, was in 1997. 275 implanted Jeez. Eggs. Wait a minute. So Dolly, the actual sheep that we know as Dolly that made all the news, mm-hmm. there are 274 Dollies that didn't make it? Oh yeah, yeah, and think. I mean, think about the process because each surrogate, as I understand, has to go through you know hormonal um, sort of processes to to help with you know actually. I mean, you know, it's it's, I mean, it's it's, it's surrogate. It's It's being you know, it's in vitro. I mean, at that point, it's Mm. you know, basically in vitro. Very very invasive. So um, the efficiency has gotten better, but even recently, so there was crab-eating macaques cloned uh-huh. in China in China um, <laughs> earlier or well published this year last year I suppose is when they did it um, and there was therefore you know their best sort of approach was 42 implants 40 some implantations 20 some pregnancies two live births wow okay so I just read something this week because of course uh, what's her face the uh, Babs, Thank you. Streisand. Right. I was about to say the crazy lady. <laughs> that cloned her I was dogs. about to say the crazy lady. Uh, <laughs> but anyway, Barbara Streisand, uh, I read that there she, she took advantage of what is now kind of a growing industry in China where people with a lot of money are doing exactly this, like they're cloning their animals. But what I want to know is, the reason why you would clone your animal is because you would want it to have one identical looks and two, at least a similar right. temperament. So, how likely are you from this process that you just explained? How likely from that exact process are you able to get a similar temperament, identical looking organism? I don't care if it's a dog or whatever. I mean, I think you're very lucky in most certain, like say with purebred dogs or something like that, uh-huh. you're very likely to get something that looks pretty similar because purebred dogs generally all look right. kind of the same. Um, temperament sort of depends, right? Because, you know, they're as similar as twins, right? Uh-huh. It's always an evil twin. Right. So, I mean, what about evil clowns? Yeah. So, so, but I mean, like say if you're- So, if, right. I killed my like, evil twin, by the way. Uh, okay. Well, you could have like, you know, Mr. Mittens and then have Cujo, like- 
in the same, you know, batch. I mean, I, w- wouldn't that be awful though? Like, could you imagine if Barbara Streisand gets back with her dogs and they're just total dicks? Like, they're just assholes. Like, uh, that would be. By the way, not only can I imagine it, I'm actually <laughs> gleefully imagining it. Well, and 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 I actually, yeah, I did some research about the lab that um, produced these dogs, and it costs around fifty thousand yeah. dollars, sometimes more. And so, yeah, it's it's an expensive person's game, uh, game, but. I just can't imagine. I also, I do wonder though, if people are choosing to clone their dogs more than cats because cats are just so, well, you know, I love cats. Uh, Don't get me wrong. I am a cat person before I'm a dog person, believe it or not. And I love dogs, but I'm a cat person first. And as a cat lover, I will say they're all replaceable. (laughs) Come on. I mean, and and from somebody that, you know, I'm all about adopting and, you know, getting an animal from a shelter. There's there's plenty out there. I, I find it just incredibly wasteful, but also just all the surrogate animals that have to go through this process, because I'm sure, I don't know. All right. And also, um, if you're doing this commercially, right, you have to overdo it. Yeah. Because you want to be guaranteed of getting at least one. So if you're getting your dog cloned and you're just getting one from them, there's probably two or three others that you're not getting. You're not getting. Well, she, yeah. So for instance, she has, she has two of them. Like she, right, right, right. She, That's just because the, the company was sort of, uh, you want well, they threw in an extra yeah, one. Yeah, exactly. It's a two, a two for one special. Yeah. They were just like, Hey, what do you know? We ended up with two. Wait, there's more. <laughs> for this limited time, you get an extra Sammy that may or may not be, you know, a horrible output, but yeah. So, it, and the other, so, so talk, talk to me about just the, the, the potential downside of cloning. I mean, people said that Dolly didn't live as long as, say, a, a typical sheep of her of her species. I, you know, I mean, from what I can tell from the literature, for the most part, I mean, Dolly died, but Dolly died young for a sheepish, but but it was a good life. Yeah, I mean, she accomplished. Life. I'm sure it was amazing, and she accomplished all her goals. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, but other otherwise, it seems for the species that people have done enough of that the lifespan there there are no major sort of side effects and health and whatnot um there might be some i mean the the problem is that you know this incredibly low efficiency right mm-hmm. you know that you have to create you know 50 or 100 of these em- or of these you know de- you know fancy mm-hmm. renucleated cells in order and implant them in order to get one or two i see so the sort of transformation of the nucleus of the developed cell into a, like a functioning, um, you know, a, you know, viable egg. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, there's a lot of problems there. There does seem to be a bit of an excess of, you know, carry to term, but then have some developmental abnormalities and die very soon. Oh, that's not good. After, it's yeah. unfortunate. After birth. Hey, hey. <laughs> but from what you can, what I can tell from literature is that, you know, if it makes it to term is born and is okay. It's okay. So now I'm really getting a sense of the, um, I would say moral uh, and philosophical uh, conundrums that surround human cloning. All these things that you're bringing up. We're going to get into that. Every time you bring them up, I'm like, whoa, (laughs) whoa. Like, you know, but that notwithstanding, since we're going to get in there, I have one quick question. When we manipulate the DNA uh, for like gene splicing and plants and, you know, for like farming. Right. So how close are we to perhaps um, cloning for the purposes of, okay, 
I'm going to take out this. I know that this is a characteristic that I don't want. So I'm going to take that out and then renucleate this shell. And then I'm going to have that. Did that make any sense? Because <laughs> I'm like, I'm trying to explain my question, you know, because I, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a scientist. But gene editing. I mean, for gene for editing, right. So how close are we to gene editing combined with cloning? For some simple things, you know, if it's something there, like this one gene is defective or whatnot, mm -hmm. and I want to switch that out. I mean, I think we're shockingly close for some of this. Wow. Um, for humans, not so much because of all of these inefficiency problems, right? Of course. I mean, you know, people are well, a bit more okay with, okay, we're going to sacrifice a hundred mouse embryos sure. as opposed to, okay, we're going to fix this disease, but we're going to kill 150 of you. Yeah. They, they have done, um, they just tried a trial of gene editing in terms of those that are um, suffering from um, blood blood diseases. Mm -hmm. They've been able to inject them with um, cells that have been um, edited and that would hopefully um, eradicate their problems, but it's still in the very beginning stages. But this is a way that potentially gene editing can help actually already currently living, breathing individuals with diseases. So right. I think there's still work to be done. And it is it is ethically, um, it, it's tough because you, you want to make sure that, you, you know, you're not doing these tests on people and they could potentially kill them, you know. Right, you know, and for, for humans, I think the emphasis on that sort of thing is more on the therapeutic cloning, that I'm going to take a cell from you, right? grow it up in the dish, right. makes, you know, therapy. turn it into... You know, say you have some blood disorder, turn it into a primordial blood cell that has right. been sort of fixed. And then, and then inject, inject that, that into you and allow that to then yeah. fix your problem. Yeah. As cool. opposed to, so that's more as of a, opposed to, we're going to clone you. Right. And that new clone is going to be much better than you. <laughs> well, you know, and the reason that, so, so the reason why I asked that is, and I know we got to wrap it up, is because there was this uh, great episode of, okay, Star Trek. Yes. Okay. <laughs> yes. I'm going to the Star Trek. Okay. Where, uh, the, they stopped reproducing, so the entire society was nothing but clones. Hmm. Right. And you know, and 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 that's Clonies. why I asked that. Yeah, know? I don't know if I'd like that. That sounds like not fun. That, that's the whole point. Of, that's part of the fun of life, man. Um, I like you to tell uh, you know, <laughs> on the same page, Chuck. This bump. Uh, we're gonna go to commercial, and then we're gonna come back and take your cosmic queries, and we're gonna bring on a uh, the curator of mammalogy from American Museum of Natural History, uh, Dr. Ross McPhee, who's gonna talk to us about de-extinction. Hey, welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, joined with my hilarious co host, Chuck Nice. Hey. And biological anthropologist, Dr. Ryan Rom. And welcome in, uh, to the stage in studio. We have uh, Dr. Ross McPhee, who is the curator of vertebrate uh, zoology at the American Museum of Natural History. Say that 10 times fast. <laughs> you did well. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs> we are pleased to have you both here. And today we're talking about the wacky and wild, controversial science of cloning from uh, can it be done to the ethics of it. And we want to Start with a little cosmic query, just to kind of warm us up. So, Chuck, do you have anything for us? Yeah, um, <clears throat> I'm. You know, I'm going to start with something that is a little silly, but at the same time, um, there there is some substance here. And this is oh god, uh, <laughs> Ibs porcelain. I don't know. That's that's the name they gave from Instagram. Says, can I clone myself, implant the embryo in my womb? And therefore, give birth to myself. 
<laughs> well, in short, yes, but why the hell would you want? <laughs> right. Yeah, that seems super weird, but <laughs> all right. I'm just going to say that this person might be a narcissist. I was going to say that right there, I think, is the textbook just, definition. Right, it of, just might be. To give birth to Good luck with that one, yeah. <laughs> all right, cool. Uh, so now that that silliness <laughs> is out of the way, um, we're, um, okay. Okay. Uh, this is Risham9132 says there has been talk of cloning woolly mammoths and Tasmanian tigers. If we did so, would it be beneficial for the earth or only remove human guilt? So if, uh, if, if we were to clone endangered species now, cause what they did was they, to, you know, if we were to clone in day, I'm, I'm sorry, but I'm, Expanding on your question here, okay? <laughs> so the one question here is about bringing something back. But the other question here is, are there cloning benefits to keeping something around? So two different, real, two different questions, and both of them with very different ecological uh, benefits and effects. Well, they, they are distinctly different, but I, I would not use the word cloning when it comes to endangered species. In principle, yes, you could. But much more important is the possibility through gene editing, which you've already introduced, of introducing in species that for one reason or another just aren't making it, trying to increase their chances of survival. This is called facilitated adaptation in the trade. And so far, I can't point to any really good examples that involve uh, animals like mammals. But it has been done with plants, and it's been done mm. in particular with the American chestnut, which used to be a dominant species in the Northeast, right. and got a, a, a disease, a, a, a fungus that absolutely decimated American chestnut. So, they, so in effect, they, they don't exist. They, they exist as plants that can grow for a while, but then they get all gnarly and horrible, and they, they never become tree-like. They have a relative in Asia, which is immune, or relatively speaking, immune to, to this. And through gene editing, they've introduced the genetic basis for, for resistance to this disease. And what might happen, what I fervently hope will happen, is that we'll eventually have this iconic tree back in our country. So that's a good thing. That is a good because thing. Because chestnuts were, were, were really a very dominant part of the forest landscape in, uh, in North America. And to bring that tree back, I think, it's win-win. It's there, there, there's no obvious loss factor to it. With animals, it can be different because, first of all, you're playing God, inevitably, by saying, okay, this species, this marmoset, since we've <laughs> yes. this marmoset's in trouble. So why don't we add something to its genetic code, which is going to make it easier for it to feed on gums or something like that, which is what they do. Uh -huh. And on that basis, they'll be more successful. There'll be more of them, so the populations will rise. Well, in effect, we don't know that. There's all kinds of unintended consequences yeah, I mean, once you accidental. start doing this, this sort of thing. So facilitated adaptation... I'm kind of agnostic about it for... There is a good mammalian example for that, or of a possibility, that's very analogous to the chestnut, which is the black-footed ferret, whose populations have been decimated by a disease, again. Mm -hmm. And the remaining population is super inbred. Okay. Which is generally considered a bad thing. That's right. Yeah, you don't... Yes. You know, not good. But there are cryopreserved 
DNA or cells from black-footed ferrets from before. Uh Oh. Ah. So there's some similar idea to the chestnuts would be if you could edit in resistance to this disease into these cells. The ones that are here. Were before. No, it, 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 it's a great point, Ryan. The trouble is that they've got such a huge genetic load as a result of all of the inbreeding. Now say this again. Wait, no, wait, ho, ho. I'm sorry, guys. Individuals that are preserved from before that are not part of the present population and then add in genetic diversity that way. But just, just for my sake and maybe somebody who's not following as quick, they have what load? What did you call it? It's called genetic load, and you can think of it as just being uh, – <laughs> Genes that are detrimental in one sense or another to your existence. Okay. okay. So any number of things, right? Like uh, predisposition for cancers, be a good example in humans, uh-huh. right? And the problem with inbreeding, <clears throat> just like with, uh, with domestic animals in general, since you're concentrating on very few characters that you're interested in having, like big meat production, big milk production, so on, you let everything else vary. And the... Problem with that is that you can get a buildup of detrimental features, which you don't care about because you're in it for the business, and uh, that will reduce the lifespan, say, or the adequacy of life for the individuals concerned. Inbreeding is really what we're talking about in the case of uh, the existing population of uh, black-footed ferrets. And to overcome that, Ryan's right, it's, it's potentially possible, but because we're dealing with advanced animals, it's going to take a long time before you're out of that neck of the woods, as it were, with, with genetic load. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, we, right. we were talking about earlier, even just the idea of, mm-hmm. uh, of eradicating uh, certain species just because of, of, of the damage they do to humans, such as mosquitoes. And well, right. Uh, there, there's a lot of interest in eradicating certain species of mosquitoes because they do carry pathogens. That means getting and, and rid they, of them, guys, just, just so we know. We just so, if they, no, I mean, a because, technical yeah. question. Kill them off. Yeah, kill them off. Kill off all mosquitoes. There, Is there, that ethical? There's a lot of diseases that people are, are, are aware of, frightfully aware of these days, like Zika, mm-hmm. yes. South America leading to microcephaly, uh, malaria, uh, chikungunya, other ones. And the point is that these are the, the mosquito species involved are the vectors. These are the carriers. You can develop vaccines. You can do this, that, and the next thing. You can reduce their, their breeding cycles and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, you're always going to have the problem. So the question is, is it right to think in terms of absolutely getting rid of the species that are the carriers? It's not their fault right? <laughs> yeah. That's why there's a moral question <laughs> involved about the sanctity do. of life. They're doing what yeah. they do. They're not necessarily very happy to be infected, but do we get rid of them because it benefits people? But does that, does it really benefit people? And by that, I mean, let's say you get rid of them. Are there any, uh, let's call it circle of life issues that will arise from the eradication of, of, of a species? Like it's just getting rid of a cascade, right? Like like, a butterfly effect, how it will affect. Is is there, is there anything like that that will happen? Or overpopulation. It's all working out in real time. We have no idea, but but let's think about it. That sounds like a good plan. Just play it by ear, guys. (laughs) This is what we've been doing for the last 350,000 years of all being an anatomically yeah, modern human. Exactly. <laughs> With respect to mosquitoes, uh, there's, there's two big problems. One is, one way of doing this would be to adjust their genetics so that only females are produced, so they're going to die out in a generation or so. But this is real life, and there will be, there will be individuals that probably escape that, 
and they could bring the species back. That's one thing. So th there's no guarantees in this. The other side of it is that the pathogens themselves are very keen to be carried by anybody who's willing to carry them. Yeah. And the idea that just by taking out one species, you've solved the problem, you probably haven't. You might pick up the load and and, and yeah. take it on. Well, so it's like that. Exactly. Just the whole idea of nature finds a way. Uh, we 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 all probably seen Jurassic Park, and I just wanted to kind of touch on on the idea of de-extinction because that's something that you uh, do focus a lot on, and just the idea of, of could we bring back species from uh, the past and. Uh, I just was curious, you know, if you could tell us a little bit about what resurrection biology is and de-extinction, because people people back at home might not realize exactly what that is and what that entails. In a nutshell, de-extinction is to bring back species that are already gone. And the idea is that this might be possible to do because we can recover, at least partially, their DNA if they didn't die out too long ago. So within, say, the course of 100,000 years or much less, the chances are that using modern techniques, that you'll be able to get at least part of their genomes. Now, here's the point. Uh, you need, in sort of the general case, you need a very close living relative whose uh, genome, whose total genetic endowment can be used as kind of a, a, a bow plan or, or, or a scaffold so that you can compare how that species differs from the one that's extinct. Okay. And using gene editing techniques, this is the next part of the plan, you can put in to the species you're trying to recreate on this scaffold the ways in which it differed genetically from the living close relative. Is that why they say that a woolly mammoth might be able to return because it's close enough to whatever elephant that is here now? Asian elephant. The Asian elephant. Yeah, they're, they're very close. So a woolly mammoth is really an Asian elephant in need of a haircut. Is that, here you go. They're very yeah. close. Just yeah, and people are actually doing that. And in, in fact, uh, this is being worked out right now in George Church's lab at, at Harvard. He's he's a, a very famous geneticist <laughs> who's very interested in trying to bring back extinct species. And and the mammoth is the star boy right now. Now there's a, there's a third part to this. If I if I if I may, there is a third part to this, which is in in a way the most difficult. You can create the genome in the lab but then you have to get it into uh, a living elephant, a surrogate, just as Ryan was describing for Dolly. And there issues arise because you don't really know, especially in this experimental phase, what's going to happen. One of the things that can happen, for example, is that oncogenes, genes that are responsible for inducing cancers, during this cloning operation where you spark them or you, you chemically in induce division, Everybody gets derepressed. And if everybody gets derepressed, then going back to the idea of the load, whatever you're carrying, that can start expressing itself. And you can have a perfectly nice little embryo that develops maybe even to term who's going to turn up its toes very quickly because of this kind of issue. We just don't know. Don't know. How complex the organism is, the chances are increased. Well, and then also say with elephants, you know, it's one thing to clone a dog or a mouse. Elephants gestate for two years. Right. That's, so yeah. you have yeah. to take the long view on yeah. it. Exactly, right? It's a very uh, long baking experiment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. And but, I mean, yeah, I can't imagine there's a surplus of, of surrogate elephants just kind of hanging out ready. <laughs> no, you know, no, I mean, definitely not. But from an ethical point of view, there's, there's something else. And maybe this is the fourth part of this discussion, which is where the hell are you going to put them? Elephants are big creatures. They're also social creatures. 
And what's the idea here? Are you just going to shove them into zoos? In which case, you haven't really brought them back. You, you've, you've brought back a freak. This is P.T. Barnum land. It's not uh, improving their lives or through restorative justice. The idea of restorative justice is that we as humans did wrong by possibly causing the extinction of woolly mammoths, so it's our job to bring them back. Well, what are you bringing them back to? These, these are very important ethical questions which tend to get um, hidden yeah. because the science is really? so fascinating. But Ross, no, you're, yeah. you're actually forgetting one really important point. <laughs> it's cool. <laughs> yeah. It's totally cool. Yeah, I know, and that's the yes. thing. It's like, I mean, it's like, wow, there's yes, a holy bomb. It comes in. No, I know. I always fear that response because I never know what to say. Of course right. it's cool. <laughs> of course I would like to see it. But at the same time, you have to make provision for how these animals are going to spend sure. the rest of their existences. And what are you doing? You're, you're only going to bring back one? That is total freak fill. That's just, yeah, if you're going mean. to bring back the self replicating population, that's different. But then you have to have a place to house that population. I've, I'll, this is, I'll get a let ranch. me tell you what you, I, you have just inspired <laughs> me to write my first children's book called The Only Lonely Mammoth. Oh, <laughs> man. I'm going to write this book. It's The Only Lonely Mammoth. That's a great <laughs> book. So you know, and from a genetic perspective, the gene editing approach to bringing back endangered species presupposes that we actually understand the genetic differences that actually make a mammoth a mammoth. And so say, say, well, say for humans versus chimpanzees, like when we look at humans versus chimpanzees, the obvious differences obviously don't account for it. You know, we can look at this protein and that protein are slightly different in humans, but there's not enough of those differences to, you know, actually, sure. you know, create the differences that we see that most of the differences between humans and chimpanzees are regulatory. Humans produce a little bit more of this here, a little bit less of this there. And presumably, that's probably true for mammoths versus woolly elephants. Okay. I mean, there's some low-hanging fruit that I think George, has looked, George Church has looked at, like some genes that have variations that might be associated with cold resistance, mm -hmm. some genes associated yeah. with hair growth yeah. and Definitely. fat. Yeah. But if you, do the, if you just do those, you're just going to get an Asian elephant that has a lot of hair. You're not getting a mammoth. problem. I got to tell you something. You know, Chuck, Ryan, Chuck I'll take okay it. With that. Chuck, I'll take it, Ryan. We're going to wrap it up real quick. We're going to go to commercial, but we're, we're going to come back and talk more about de-extinction and cloning and all this good stuff. Welcome back to Star Talk All Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan, joined by my hilarious co host, Chuck Nice. Yes. Hello. We're talking about cloning today with biological anthropologist, Dr. Ryan Rahm, and, uh, well, mammologist and curator of vertebrate zoology, uh, Dr. Ross McPhee. Uh, now, let's just jump right back into it because we are having way too much fun talking about de extinction, cloning, the ethics, ah, all of it. Woolly mammoths, Pleistocene Park. Yes. Uh, as a matter of fact, why don't we just take another question right away because. Um this, uh, okay, let me find. This is, oh, thank you, Mark, folks. <laughs> it's just Mark. I love it. Oh, what a great name. Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> Easy to say. <laughs> yeah, so uh, Mark comes to us from Twitter, at MrMark34, says this. If you take religion completely off the table, so there are, there are no considerations, I don't understand why... Uh, what is unethical about cloning at all? So let's take, now he's, because there are other moral considerations outside of religion. Absolutely. 
absolutely. Okay. But but he's right. Once you once you get into those waters, man, you're you're splashing around in some really deep stuff. So let's take that off the table. I think the other the question to rephrase it would be what are the other moral complications and considerations uh of cloning and 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 how do we overcome them? Well, I think an outstanding one and I hope I'm not in a minority on this is animal welfare. Let's just think about for example domestic species just for a moment, which is not it, it can be about cloning. In fact, cloning is very important now for a certain for certain domestic animals. But how do we treat them? Are, do we treat them with compassion or are they just steaks or chicken breasts or you know, half a fillet, that kind of thing? Now, you can say that there is an offsetting need, which is that people have to eat, and this is absolutely true. My point here, however, is that the more compassion we treat other living things with, morally, the better we are. And that has nothing to do with religion. It's a, it's a different kind of approach to this sort of thing. So let's go to de-extinction. Let's talk about bringing back woolly mammoths. Okay, in principle, we'll say it can be done. What are you going to do with them? And let's think about, first of all, where are we going to put them? We're not going to put them in the center of North America because then they would end up as casualties <laughs> on the highway. It's just the way it is. What a pileup. Right. <laughs> when you think of the Northeast, with the number of deer and skunks and this, that, and the next thing that die on a nightly basis, it would be the same sort of thing. So that's not right. So the answer is Texas. <laughs> <laughs> right. They I, are I the could long go on a riff of, of, about uh, AR-15s. <laughs> okay. There is an alternative that's been suggested, and I think this is worth looking at because it, it, it has an outcome that is interesting. This is the idea of the Pleistocene Park that Sergei Simov, who's a noted Russian ecologist, has developed over the last 20 years or so. And the idea here, in a very remote part of Siberia called the Kolyma Basin, he's thinking that if he could bring back these megafauna, these really big species like the woolly mammoths, mm -hmm. and repopulate that area with cold-adapted species, mm -hmm. that over time they would transform What's there now? Now, what's there now is taiga. This is a particular kind of forest uh, formation. It's not really the kind of place that a woolly mammoth is going to be able to hang out in very easily because there's trees everywhere. The idea is to convert it to the kind of grassland situation that existed there more than 10,000 years ago when mammoths and other big megafauna were around. Would they convert it or would are they assume well, this is the mammoths point. will do it? How's it going to happen? Yeah. His argument is that it would happen naturally. And how does that work? Because when you have these huge guys walking around who are eating upward of a couple of hundred pounds of, of uh, vegetable matter each day, that they're going to be crapping a whole lot, mm -hmm. adding nutrients to the soil. And because they're everywhere, they're also going to be turning it over. They're sort of like, like animated plows in a way. <laughs> and what that's going to do is encourage the return of an ecosystem that disappeared at the end of uh, end of the last ice age. It goes on from there with the idea that once that happens, then you could probably introduce agriculture and so on and so on. I'm not going to go there. I'm just going to ask the following question. You get a really bad winter and what happens to your megafauna that you've spent so much time and effort to recreate? Well, they're going to die because this is what happens all the time in natural situations. How are you going to feel about it? 
having made the claim that this is our restorative justice, that we're bringing back these species, and then they don't make it. Or, for reasons that Ryan went into earlier in this broadcast, with problems of, of, uh, of genetics that they're inheriting because of the particular ways in which these clones are made or the, the, these individuals are made, that they don't make it. I don't think it's worth doing this when there are so many other problems induced by humanity everywhere on the planet to bring back species that are now extinct. I'm willing to, to debate it and, and hear, hear the alternative ideas, but just to reintroduce a species who's been gone for a very long time, whose capacity to survive in the situation that we have here in the 21st century, who may be very susceptible to diseases that are present in, in its close relatives, or it may have its own, and on and on and on. Yeah, considering what we're dealing with what we're dealing with climate change, it's it's absolutely cruel to bring back a species that is, is cold, you know, has a niche environment, it's cold dependent. And I I, I definitely I mean it, it it makes me happy to hear, you know, somebody it, most scientists I feel like do have a, a desire to look out for the welfare of animals, but I, I just hope that that continues because for me that's a huge problem with the ethics of this is just, you know, all the animals that will suffer or potentially suffer, even if it's successful, what happens if they do die out? I mean, then what, you know, all, and, and considering that there's so many elephants that are actually currently endangered, why That's, are we, why are we focusing on bringing something back when we could be trying to conserve the ones? Because it's there? cool. Because it's so cool. And because oh this, my is, God. this is humans at work. We're fascinated by our capacities yep. right. and how we can transform <laughs> well, that's, nature. That, that, that's absolutely correct. But listen, that type of bringing it back to just um, cloning your dog, cloning your cat, right? So I have a cat, very sweet. I'm never going to clone him, you know, beyond the inefficiencies of it, mm -hmm. where you have to, you know, you're going to lose so many embryos and whatnot. Yeah. There's not a big shortage of cats in the world. <laughs> Right, you know, I mean, my cat was a rescue cat. There's plenty of other rescue cats out there. There's no big shortage of cats, and same oh, for dogs. Yeah. Right. You know, like, there's no big shortage of dogs in the world, and even, you know, if you have a golden retriever and you love it and you want them back, well, all golden retrievers are like ridiculous and happy and friendly to yeah, ones. So just get another golden retriever. They're out there. Absolutely, yeah. and you'll you'll save fifty thousand dollars, guys. Yes. I mean, I'm just saying, I, I that could go to give it to the SPCA. Absolutely, no. All right, well, let's take on another question here. This is Diawina. Okay, whatever you people are, just sending in crap to mess with me. I know you are. <laughs> okay, <laughs> uh, from Instagram says this: uh, Do you think that cloning? could be a good way or means of testing nature versus nurture? The, the questioner is asking a very important question in human development, but that's my point. It's human development. Nurture, nature, out there in, in the world of other species, it just doesn't arise in the same way. The issues are not the same. Of course, there's always both. It's unavoidable. And when you're talking about humans as to whether they should have the proper circumstances to grow up in or to live in and so forth. That's an important moral question. For the animals, it's important also, but in a different kind of way. It's not that you're claiming that you can transform their lives uh, by increasing opportunities for education or for better food or whatever it amounts to. It's right. just a different question. Right. And 
There's so much literature on this for humans already that it it, it, it barely needs touching, I think. Or, or, just, or just for anything that there is no nature versus nurture debate. You know, in yeah. that not both, not right, always both, right? Exactly. And yeah. we're and, and humans spe- specifically are very cultural species to to, and we're very plastic. You know, our environment shapes a lot of who we are. So I think to I think it I think it's clear that you know if if, if there's been studies that twins that have been raised separately. Uh, whether it was through adoption or, or, or whatever means, they have similarities, but they they can be vastly different. I mean, it's it's it, it is very much possible, and yeah. So here's another question from Master Kittyland. <laughs> Master of Kittyland. Master Kittyland. I bet they'd clone their cat. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and um, does does cloning mean creating individuals that are biologically the same, same genes? Same fingerprints, same voices, like 4D printing. Uh, the the second part of the question is: Would their thoughts and personalities and habits be the same? Also, but I think we already know the answer to that. However, from a biological identity um, uh, standpoint, how how identical could you get uh, a clone to be to um, to the? I mean, I'd to say the it mom. depends on what's your criterion there. I mean, in, to the extent that I mean. Identical twins are as identical are as identical as you're going to get. Okay, right? right, because that's the same exact cell, yeah, right? That, it's one cell, that's one cell split, that's split, and then those two cells actually go on to develop into two separate people. Well, that's so as you, identical you, as you're possibly going to get. Right. So you know, for any kind of cloning, you know, the peak of it in terms of similarity or whatnot is like how similar are twins in a general sense. So we've already uh we have already achieved not we I say it like <laughs> 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 right. no we so well yeah, I'm exactly. so proud God, of God look at me. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I know about your cloning business. <laughs> <laughs> but nature has already achieved the ultimate clone. That's what you're saying. Like the ultimate clone is is identical twins. It doesn't get any more uh identical than that, right? I mean so you know the best we can do is that and nature, nature has already sort of provided that as an experiment for us. That, right. Okay. We know what two genetically identical individuals that develop differently. We know how similar they are. Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So the answer. So the answer is uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's no end. Yeah. No end. Yes. Yeah. 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 So a quick thing, just because I know that I, a lot of people when I mention cloning or talk about, you know, the, the people still think Jurassic Park is a, a possibility. Uh, but obviously uh, you have to have the DNA, viable DNA. And I just want to, I mean, Ryan, you you work with uh, ancient DNA. What is the oldest ancient viable DNA that has been used up until this point? Proving thus we can't bring back something that's 65 million years old. Right, somewhere in the 300,000 range. It's a little Holy moly. 54. 700. 700. 700. Oh, right, that's uh, the horse. The, the horse, yeah, yeah. Exactly. 700,000? So, okay. But, but, but it's but, pretty fragmentary at that yeah, point. Yeah. yeah, don't go there because it, this is a specimen that was preserved under very unusual conditions. Ryan's right that, you know, 10,000 years up to 100,000, there's been a lot of success. You go earlier than that and the molecule is just so degraded that it's even with modern right. techniques, you can't glue things back. Yeah. So let me ask you this, from 10,000 to 100,000 years uh, to 700,000 years, um, uh, let's put that on on um, a, a evolutionary clock for us. How long is that really? It's nothing. It's nothing. So, okay, I got you. So it really, so you're not really going back 
to a a variation of that? Are, how different is the variation? Right. Well, but I mean, I think even with these ancient DNA things, I think we should even talk about modern genomes in that when we sequence ancient DNA or we sequence modern DNA, we're sequencing a lot of the genome, but there's big important chunks of the genome that we just technically is incredibly difficult to sequence. Mm. Like the ends and middles of your chromosomes have these long, complicated stretches of repetitive DNA sequences. And they're really important in terms of the replication of those chromosomes and various other things, but it's really difficult to sequence. So, you know, even for living things. Mm -hmm. So there's, when we sort of recover DNA, we recover sort of a sub, it was a large subset, but it's a subset of the genome um, that we recover from ancient DNA. And some of these other important sort of components of the genome we're never going to recover from ancient DNA probably. Wow. I have to wrap it up guys. What? Was, I know. I know this is, this is, oh. I, so it's talk over? About, I don't want it to be over. <laughs> it's such a, this is fascinating. Thank you guys for being here uh, again. Uh, Dr. Ryan Rom and Dr. Ross McPhee talking about cloning Chuck nice, always bringing the hilarious uh, questions and pointing out that, Cloning is complicated. It, yeah, you know, who knew? I didn't, I mean. Who knew me cloning was I, so complicated? It is complicated. So thank you so much. This has been Star Talk All-Stars. I'm your host, Natalia Reagan. And keep staying curious and looking up. And don't clone yourself. <laughs> Seriously. <laughs>